This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 225. We're recording on Friday, September 8th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. Hey! <laughs> and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. For back you know, from the Wild West. The, the, it, the, basically, Oregon's on fire. Yeah. Um, spinning, spinning death weather is headed towards Florida. There's <laughs> yeah. a huge earthquake in Mexico. It feels a little bit like, you know, the end times. We had a total eclipse. Yep. It's been a weird, it's been an odd week in an odd year. Uh, so here we are at the beginning of summer. It's it, We're getting off on the weird foot, I'd say, is what's <laughs> happening this week. Rebecca's on vacation Speaking in of, Wyoming. I know. And I, I, I feel like I'm having a lot of mom feelings about it and have had to stop myself several times from being like, <laughs> look out for the fires. And when you're on your way home... I look out for Irma because by the time you fly back here, it's probably going to be like up around you know the Mid Atlantic. Are you going to get some of that action at the end? I doubt it, but I mean, if even if we do, it'll be you know the remnants of whatever. But it's it might be enough to get flights canceled. So I but I don't want to like put any of that on her while she's like enjoying the Tetons. So (laughs) please be keeping all of my mom feelings to to myself. Please be blissfully ignorant of the end times. That's uh, the way to go through these things. Look a moose. Speaking of getting off the, speaking of getting off the on the weird foot, um, Amanda took a star turn in the last episode of Annotated, playing um, uh, brief, albeit briefly, uh, Jane Claremont, um, one of Byron's many many mistresses, for a brief moment. So if you haven't checked out <laughs> any Annotated, I, I highly recommend. And you get to hear um, Rebecca Husband's Bob as Lord Byron. You get to hear my brother Kyle, our sound editor, as Percy Shelley, and the sonorous Mavesh Murad uh, as Mary Shelley. So go check that out. She, her uh, voice the, the most recent just... episode. Oh. Well, she's a pro. She does. She's a pro. And why wouldn't oh, you be yeah. with, that kind right. of, with that kind of honey-dipped uh, vocal apparatus? Um, so go check that out. That's the most recent annotated episode. That's It's called The 17-Year-Old who invented science fiction. And while we're plugging podcast stuff, I don't know if we talked about that much on this show, but our new podcast series um, launching, it's out now. First, The first episode is out now called mm-hmm. Recommended. And I won't say anything more about it because I'm about to drop in the teaser clip, the teaser episode. So you're going to hear me explain pre-recorded. So it's me, but not me right now because of technology. Okay, so here's a clip. We'll be back right after that. Hey everybody, this is a teaser episode for Book Riot's new podcast series, Recommended. It's a weekly podcast featuring one book recommendation each from two interesting people who love books. Each episode will be 15 to 20 minutes long, so it's a great way to hear about the books that make book lovers excited. Some of them are old, some are new, some familiar, and some kind of obscure. You can find the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Fierce Reads is our exclusive sponsor for this season of Recommended, and as you wait for episode one to drop, you can go enter a huge giveaway they are doing for Recommended listeners. Go to FierceReadsRecommended.com to find out more. Okay, on to the real teaser. What you are about to hear is a clip from one of the guests on our premiere episode, which will be released on September 6th. We're not going to tell you who it is or what book is being talked about. You'll have to listen to episode one to find out. So consider yourself officially teased. All right, here we go. I think that the great American novel for the 21st century has to be science fiction to some degree. And I think that's because America is a science fictional country. I think it has been for a long time. And so you have to be able to talk about the future. You have to have a, 
a rigorous vision of the future. If you're just sort of dwelling in the past and, you know, turning the same stone over in your hands, you know, again and again and again, I think you can do interesting work that way. But um, it's not the Green American novel. I am convinced that is the real Great American novel for the 21st century. Um, I will not be satisfied until people are reading it in school and writing about it, because I think it has everything to say about America, um, its past, its future, and yeah, it's fantastic. So if you feel teased by that, and, and we, we designed that one to be a teaser, Jen. Jen Northington and I have been working on this, mostly her, but me a little bit, just enough to try to steal credit. That's as much work <laughs> as I've done on it. That's the key. Um, <laughs> if you feel teased and you want to know what that voice was talking about, you can go to bookriot.com recommended to hear the full first episode now. You can find an Apple podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Go get it. You can go have your um, curiosity satiated right now. Go check that out. I'm um, really looking forward to that. I, I did an interview this week with a National Book Award winner. I'm scheduling an interview that's going to happen next week for an Emmy Award winner. I, I, we got all kinds of award winners up in this business, so um, stay tuned. Lots of interesting stuff happening there. Let's go on the rest of the show, but let's talk about our first sponsor, The Nocturnal Journal. Uh, it's an engaging and emotionally aware resource for night owls, insomniacs, and anyone else who can't just turn off their restless minds when the lights go out. The Nocturnal Journal will help you explore what keeps you up at night and why. Prompts and illustrations tease out the pressing thoughts, deep questions, everyday anxieties, and half-formed creative ideas that need unpacking and exploring, bringing more peace of mind and a richer understanding of ourselves. Hand-lettered and illustrated throughout, Lee Crutchley's insightful, interactive journal is a natural next step for those who have tried coloring, mindfulness, and meditation. So it's a, if for those of you who could use a little, I don't know, help, a little soothing, a little thoughtfulness, a little consideration of your nocturnal routine, go check out The Nocturnal Journal by Lee Crutchley, thanks to Tarcher Peregrine, the publisher of Nocturnal Journal, for sponsoring this week's show. Okay. Um, Follow-up, 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 follow-up. Um, we didn't get your we didn't get your opinion of the all female <laughs> remake of Lord of the Flies. I'm guessing it wasn't too much different than ours, which is kind of no thanks. No, um, no, just no, just no. no. Um, and we mentioned, I believe, on that show that Libba Bray has already written a all female version of Lord of the Flies, but but it's not using the structure, but kind of the the idea um, of girls get together and what happens if you're outside of the normal social consequence. And I just want to, I'm not going to, unless there's anything you want to talk about this piece specifically, I thought I would just mention, and it's going to be in the show notes. I think it's worth reading. Um, You know, she's done this, she's thought about it, what the consequences, how it might need to be. Um, You know, yeah. The interesting thing about that EW article from her is Um, she goes on to talk about how hard or impossible it was for her to get the beauty queens made into a movie. Like the rights were purchased Mm. and then a bunch of dudes, CEOs in Hollywood got a hold of it. And she said, they just basically like ruined it. Like they ruined her book and made it the opposite of what it was supposed to be. Like there's a literal cat fight Mm. scene in the script that they came up up with and, um, they just trashed it because dudes. And so that's why there hasn't been a female movie version of Lord of the Mm -hmm. Rings because, you know, male centered Hollywood took her book and made it gross. So yeah, it's an interesting look at how hard it is to get a female centered thing made. 
Yes, and kind of bridging off the specific case that we were, Rebecca and I were talking about last week of Lord of the Flies and especially being written by two dudes, we kind of were coming around to the idea of like, even if it was written by, I guess it would be better if it was written by women, but even better would be a story bespoke, not trying to use the, the, the hollowed out husk of Lord of the Flies, like tell a story specific to and created for women in this particular case. And Bray's kind of last line suggests something along those lines, but more eloquently put, surprise, surprise. <laughs> we exist complete with our stories, which are also complete. And we can tell the hell out of those stories about ourselves by ourselves, if only we could get the chance. So that's that's as succinctly put, I think, as um, we're going to get there. I thought that was interesting. Uh, more follow-up. A lot of follow-up about how wrong everyone is about Terry Pratchett's <laughs> unfitted work, at least to, and to my thinking. No one is on my side, as far as I can tell that even though um, Mr. Pratchett's wishes were honored, and I think that is fine, and of course it makes a lot of sense, there's also part of me that wishes this didn't happen. Um, I don't know how that would affect. Maybe we go back in time and convince Mr. Pratchett that there's no dirty laundry that you could be aired after the fact that will make anyone think any less, um, and history is long, and people are interested. And I I don't know if it's the academic in me. I don't know if it's the voyeur in me. I don't know how two those two things are actually maybe more related than people give it credit for, but I would sure like that stuff to be around and not lost for all time. No one else thinks that way, um, which is why this no. happens because the universe is wrong. And there we go. So, <laughs> I think anyway, I think you're you wrong. You have a feeling about this. About this? I yeah, do. you think My, I'm wrong too. Well, it's only because of how he died. Like you, you know, he had Alzheimer's for a yes. long time, and having seen in my own family how that affects people especially mm-hmm. in the like early to middle stages when they think they're still of sound mind and are still trying to do their work, but are very obviously not like I wouldn't, if, if I were him and knew that that's how my work was being affected, I would not want that out there mm-hmm. because of his illness. So I'm cool totally understand it. Not... it. Yeah. Yeah. The way I come at me. it, I mean, again, <laughs> not to try to convince people aren't going to agree with me and they can, you know, be there in their wrongness. That's fine. Um, the, the thing I think about is the, you know, kind of a veil of ignorance, way of thinking. You don't know what's there. And if we always um, obeyed the wishes of authors, we wouldn't have most of Dickinson. We wouldn't have the Aeneid, some Nabokov, so on and so forth. But yeah, but um, they didn't have I don't think it's a moral though, failing. So. Yeah. But you know what? That's not the argument people are making. Yeah. Well, I also, he, I mean, it's kind of a catch 22 too, because if he was of sound enough mind to make the decision to have it destroyed, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't there. I can't make a decision. That is an attenuating factor in this particular case. Um, but in the general case, I'd prefer the stuff that doesn't get destroyed, so sue me. Actually, don't sue me. Please don't. Don't, don't at me. <laughs> um, a little follow-up from the privatizing library story, too. We got some feedback, and I think it's actually it's, it's, it's as rare. There's a reason Rebecca and I hadn't heard of this. I don't know if you had heard of this private libra- privatizing public library story before we covered it last week, but um, there's a reason Rebecca and I haven't heard of it. It's actually pretty rare. A couple of people wrote in that some libraries in their particular branch or system have been privatized. No one, as far as I can tell, wrote back saying, I have direct experience with this. Um, but it seems to me that for all the, the, the flowery language and all the best interest that everyone says this is going to be more efficient, it kind of comes down to cheaper labor. That's where the cost savings come from. These private companies don't hire basically unionized or other, you know, government employees that are covered by collective bargaining or other kinds of contracts or laws, and they can get cheaper labor. And that's where the cost savings arise from. So I think Rebecca and I were kind of suspecting that to be the case. 
Um, and it turns out that as far as we know um, from people who have any direct experience with this, that is the case. So there's that. Um, we'll continue to find uh, that story interesting as, as we go along. Um, on to the new news. Uh, let's see. I guess the big story we wanted to talk about um, first, well, not first, but make sure we covered it, is um, especially after coming off the shenanigans around <laughs> the Handbook for Immortals, um, you know, people, again, looking at the particular idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasies of how the New York Times bestseller list is put together, a conservative publisher um, called Regenery, it sounds like mm -hmm. it, Red, Regnery, Regnery, I guess, R-E-G-N-E-R-Y. It sounds like a company in like a William Gibson, like steampunk thriller does, like or something yeah, like does. that. Um, basically saying they're going to... I don't know, take their ball and go home when it comes to the New York <laughs> Times bestseller list um, to, because they're annoyed that its book, The Big Lie by Dinesh D'Souza, should have been on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, or it was. It was only number it seven. Was. but they yeah. Yeah, they thought it should have been number one um, based on some other data they get, especially from Nielsen's book scan, which we've talked about is different from the New York Times bestseller list. And they're saying that it's political, the New York Times is a left-leaning publication and that this has something to do with the New York Times' particular liberal views. Um, and more so than that, the opacity of the New York Times methodology is making them very cranky. And so they're mm. not going to use it to promote themselves. They're not going to link to it. They're not going don't, to... I don't even know what behavior is going to change, but they're basically very mad about it and they'd like everyone to know how mad they are about it. And there we go. No one cares. Um, what do we think about this? Go away. No one cares. Yeah. I don't care. This is the publish. This is the imprint that was going to publish what Milo's book. First of all, yeah. This, right. This Dinesh's book is about how the Democrats are Nazis. The other book that they were mm -hmm. complaining about is a book about how Sharia law is coming to a neighborhood near you. They publish Ann Coulter. Like this is a publisher of fringe psychopaths, and I don't care yeah. what they think about the New York Times. Right. Like, go away. <laughs> the less that they're featured. In regular publishing discourse, the better for our entire social structure. So, mm -hmm. That's yeah, like I, that. I think I'm I'm right there with you. The thing that allows them to throw a hissy fit, though, well, who cares what they allow them? But they do have a point that's worth considering: is the opacity of mm -hmm. the New York Times bestseller list. Like there is a, which is famously not numerical, not what not, and so what is the reason? Um, because the New York Times is opaque, Regnery can lob grenades at the New York Times saying, well, we don't know what your reason is, so we're going to assume ill intent. And that is your left-leaning, well, let's, I'm using left-leaning as it is a, a, a pejorative there, which it isn't, that because you disagree with our politics writ large, you're going to stick it to us by lowering our position on your bestseller list by five or six spots, which is also which is not only petty but also seems very small of a thing to do. Like, if you're really going to skewer, if you're really going to be biased, are you going to do that? No, I don't know. It seems weird. It. it seems like no. they're just like, not included moving a book somehow. Down from right? Number four to number seven is not a thing. If if they really yeah. wanted to like punish this publisher, they would just take the books off the list entirely. Yeah, because I, I, I do think that whatever process the New York Times has, I, I think it's probably not where someone then puts their hand on it at the end and presses on the scales. I think they actually do report the numbers 
unbiasedly from the apparatus they use to collect those numbers, if that makes sense. It could be that the way they collect those numbers is screwed up, but I don't think their, their algorithm is going to spit out a bunch of numbers, and then Pamela Paul is going to come say, you know what, you know those regnery screw-ups? Let, let's just artificially knock them down a few pegs. I don't see that happening. Now, does that mean that they, it is an accurate representation of whatever it's saying it's going to represent? I don't think so. Um, I said before on the show, I think the New York Times bestseller list is, uh, gets too much attention, and its opacity is um, detriment to the industry, um, and it lets people do things like think they can game the system. And also, there's also, you know, j- just think of how obtuse that gaming system was. Uh, think of all the more sophisticated things we don't even see going on that are still happening. I, I just think the whole thing should go away. Um, I... I if we're going to do it, let's just use BookScan. That's what I say. If, we're gonna, if we care about this, which I do, I think it's interesting. Um, and I think it's telling. And I think in an industry where we care about what sells and who sells what and who's writing what, I think sales matter because it, the money matters and that, matter, that well, affects everything. But it's easy to game, to game BookScan too. I mean, that's what happened with My Immortal, right? She just went out and bought a bunch of them herself. So Sure. It's, yes. and, you could, and there's no saying that that's not exactly what Dinesh did with his Nazi the, demo, Democrat book. I was going to say that's, I mean, I was going to bring that up too. There's no way to saying that they, book scan is representing something that New York Times is actually accurately filling out because they bought 2,000 of them at a Costco or something right. like that. Right, and you know, part of the New York Times is opaque whatever process is that they're trying to account for that. They missed it for My Big Immortal, which was no. whatever the name of the book was. And that's why that was such a big story because it was so random and weird. But they usually like put an asterisk by the title when they think that that's what's happening or try to account for it somehow. So like, that's a thing. I feel like the New York times is probably like their list is probably a better representation of how many books are being bought by readers than book scanned. Cause I'm fairly certain that it could be the the problem is we have no idea. We don't know what goes into that pot. Whereas with BookScan, at least we get actual numbers. And if they said here, whose reports and here's what we do with large orders. You know, you know, maybe they have mm-hmm. a the algorithm in there that's like, if there are more than this number of sales of more than 20 copies, like they have all the data. Yeah. Like they can put together filters that would say, you know, we're going we're gonna to flag these sorts of behaviors. But at least you can go to BookScan and say, how many copies is registered compared to this other book? Whereas when my, my handbook for mortals was on the top of the New York Times, we hadn't, was it one more copy? Was it 50,000 copies? Mm-hmm. It was just, an, it just, a, it's just a dumb data dump. So there's a way in which you can also assume good intent on the New York Times uh, methodology because we just don't know what the data, we just know what the methodology is. It feels like in this day and age of the internet and data collection, this is a relic of a different time. Yeah. Um, and that the veiledness of their uh, processes are doing them no favors. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that has a that's lot to my... do with their um, wanting to maintain this like, mysterious ivory tower kind of uh yeah status with the list which is whatever nobody cares about that but you know this this particular publisher bye (laughs) yeah no i think yeah and i think i think if the new york times was more transparent with this data they could throw a hissy fit but then we'd all say well this is what they do like this is how Mm -hmm. the new york times calculates if you don't like it tough whereas right now we're like well i mean i don't know they're not having anything to do with the New York Times, which all that means is that they're going to change their bonus structure for their authors. Like it doesn't, 
Yeah. It doesn't actually mean Yeah, that's what I was going to say. What behavior does it actually change? Right. I guess it just means I, that their I, writers I are not going to be able to say that. They're not going to be able to say that they're New York Times bestselling authors because their their publisher's not going to recognize that. So, I mean, they can say it. I guess it's not going to be on their books or whatever it might be. Yeah, I, presumably but they're like, not. Does I mean, Anne how Coulter much really it, care about that? Does Ann Coulter care about the liberal leaning New York Times liking her? Probably not. I mean, if if it says like Breitbart bestselling author, she'd probably be way more into that. Or you know, <laughs> David Duke likes my book or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Though. I guess the other thing is maybe it affects the ad dollars that, you know, the New York Times book review is, those are big placements. Like just this week, there was a huge two-page full-color spread for uh, John Le Carre's new novel, um, which is, does Ann, that's a Random House title. Like, I have no idea. I, I have it. zero <laughs> idea. I think Actually, I know. do know. Uh, probably not, but I don't know, you know. I don't know. Bill O'Reilly's books. Is that this imprint? I think it might be too. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, I, I thought it was interesting that hot on the heels of this other New York Times story, we get this other one. This one, I think, is a nothing burger in terms of the rationale that they're you know, kind of lobbing. Um, but it does speak to the central problem of we don't know really how this list is put together. And so you can blame ill performance or overperformance on any any number of things, um, which I do think is. It reminds me of. Um, did you see Janesh wrote uh, tweeted out a picture of his book on sale at Costco, and he I had taken it that. and like covered up the stacks of every other book with his book, but he did it so poorly that you could see what he had done. I feel like this is like that image is a type is like exactly what's happening. It's like a visual metaphor for this hissy fit that this publisher is throwing. Like, no, really, we saw lots of books. Like, no, you didn't. You and can't, and isn't this, isn't this also, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's cynical, I just, I assume it's true. This is all a big publicity stunt to talk about his book. Because his, his, his name doesn't come out our mouths ever, no, unless yeah. we talk about this story, right? We're not talking about blah, 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 publisher name here, if they don't have these wild accusations and maybe I'm getting sucked into alternative facts, blame the media, whatever. Um, but I, I think there is this central <clears throat> thing that allows them to say and gets me interested to talk about it, and it's the New York Times being opaque. Mm-hmm. Everything else on top of that fact that they're saying here, I think is garbage. But that central thing happens to be true on top of it. Um, speaking of New York Times, <laughs> um, I think this is kind of long overdue, frankly. Um, I, I've wondered if someone was going to give... Roxanne Gay, um, a more consistent, higher-profile platform on a regular basis. Um, and the New York Times is it. It sounds like it's going to be an, uh, an advice column. Um, this is a tweet. I'll put the link in the show notes called Ask Roxanne. Ask Roxanne. Uh, Roxanne wants your questions about pretty much anything, life, love, work, family, and friends. Email askroxanne at newyorktimes.com. We haven't seen what the fruit of this particular call for questions will be, but that sounds like it's going to be what it is. sounds like, which is uh, an advice column from Roxanne Gay, which should be super interesting to see not only what her responses are, but what kind of questions she picks, what kind of mm-hmm. problem she chooses to, to highlight, um, which I think will be fascinating. Man, Anything you know, I am looking at the responses. This is a tweet that the New York Times Opinion uh, Twitter yes. account put out uh, asking for call the call for questions. And I'm looking at the responses to this tweet and there's, it's just like a bunch of white people whining about her white people loves lakes thing. Did, did you see that oh, a couple God. of weeks ago? Yes, yes, yes. She was watching like, what is that show? There's a show on HGTV, which I also hate watch, 
that is people trying to like buy bargain houses on lake lakes or something like that. And she beachfront bargains. This, yes, yes. Like I think it's bargains. called beachfront bargains. She just did this throwaway yeah. tweet about how white people seem to really love lakes, and the internet came down on her for it. And you know, in her, which it always does, the internet comes down comes down on Roxanne mm-hmm. for everything she says. And her responses to it were hilarious. And then like now. Three weeks later, people are still mad about her saying that white people really? love lakes, which I feel like is objectively true. So I wonder, I'm really interested in how much abuse she's going to have to filter through to get to like actual questions in this. <sighs> yeah, inbox. unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid she's probably already used to it, right? Like it's going to yeah. be nothing new for her. Um, if anything, maybe she won't, maybe they'll have an intern or an assistant filtering the inbox. Like, will oh, she actually be, be trolling through them herself? Um, I don't know, but um, she is certainly candid. Um, she is certainly not afraid to say uncomfortable um, and necessary things. Um, I don't know the history of advice columns in New York Times well enough to know how many people of color um, have have gotten that kind of platform. I know for the ethicist, um, um, Appia, Kwame Appia followed Chuck Klosterman, which was an interesting switch. Um, hmm. But in terms of the more, more, <clears throat> I don't, I guess more, the more, more in the Dear Abby tradition of wide ranging personal advice columns, I'd be curious to know what the history of that for, for people of color, um, especially women of color, um, would be. But I really want, you know, I want this to be like Dear Sugar. <laughs> like I want it to be. Yes. Her her taking questions as a way to write really long and interesting essays about stuff. Like, that's what I want. Really, that's a great point. That's a great point. And if you've read Hunger, you know Roxanne ain't afraid to go to places. Um, <laughs> um, so if you are thinking of asking a question, be prepared. You know, you're playing in the big leagues now. Um, with people <laughs> being, being smart and open and candid and maybe real talk for which you are... Uh, Unprepared. <laughs> I think that's gird your probably, loins, guys. Um, gir- yes, gird your loins <laughs> is the appropriate um, is the appropriate situation. And I, she for a while, you know, I thought she was going to do this with the toast, and since the toast went away, she hasn't been looking. She's writing other books, and she travels and makes a lot of public appearances. So maybe this is just had gotten around to it. But or she was waiting for the right pitch to hit in mm. the New York Times. Um, is, is a good it. pitch to hit. I thought she'd be. I thought. I, I frankly think she should have a podcast. Um, I think that would be the perfect thing in this day and age um, that people would be interested in. But this platform surely will reach more people than than anything else. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, Thriller for our next sponsor. Um, this episode is brought to you by Copycat by Alex Lake. Imagine this: your stalker is everywhere. Your stalker knows everything. But the real problem is that the stalker is you. Uh, Sarah Havenant discovers when an old friend points it out that there are two Facebook profiles in her name. One she recognizes it's hers. The other she has never seen, but everything in it is accurate. Recent photo of her and her friends, her and her husband, her and her kids, even her new kitchen, a photo taken inside her house. But she's bemused, angry, and worried who was able to do this and why. And this, it soon turns out, is just the beginning. It's only now, almost as though someone has been watching, waiting for her to find the profile, that her problems really start. That's the tease. Copycat by Alex Lake. It's out now from HarperCollins. Go grab it if you are not suitably freaked out by that premise (laughs) like I am to go read the book. Uh, That's a pretty good hook. 
Uh, okay, thanks to Copycat. <laughs> I like spy novels because they're not that scary. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. thrillers in the traditional sense, I like you know the Agatha Christie style of mystery. Like they're usually not that scary. They're like more puzzles than scary. Mm-hmm. Um, though a couple of them are, are, are more disturbing. But an actual supposed to make me feel weird and creepy. Nope, I'm out. No, thank you, man. <laughs> Do you? I didn't think you did. Do you? Um, no, no. I'm the same way. I mm. used to. I used to read uh, tons of like horror and thrillers and watch tons of horror movies. And then I had children mm. and became a wuss, as you know, as yep. happens. I was um, a wuss before, now, kids, like, so. Uh, yeah. Like, I live by myself. Yeah, this... I have a security system and a pit bull. And I'm still like, mm. no, I can't watch that. I don't want to watch a movie about all the ways I'm going to die. Like, no. No. I can't even think about the promos for the film version of Stephen King's It that are out now. Like, I can't think. There's, like, too much of that clown on my Twitter and Facebook feed right now. Like, it is unacceptable. <laughs> I can't handle that. Did you see the cops? What, was it in Seattle? I think there was some town where the PR team for that movie was tying red balloons to the sewers all over the city. No, And the cops nope, nope. were too freaked out to go cut them down. So the cops had to put out a plea on Twitter that was like, please stop doing this. We're so scared. And it was, like, the best. I'd have to move. In fact, I need to move right now. I can't. Even, that's, you even said Seattle. Police. That's within driving distance. I know. Even the police yeah. were like, "No, we're just not going to mess with that." That's not. Nope. I don't like nope. that. I, I think pass. that's creeps. That's creepsville. Yeah. No thanks. No thanks to that. Uh, anyway, copycat by Alex Lake. If you like that kind of thing, which a lot of people do, <laughs> a lot of people do. Ah, Barnes and Noble. Um, first quarter um, numbers came out uh, yesterday. Long story short, continues to fade. Uh, store sales down in the mid-single digits. Comp store sales down in the mid-single digits, even though, I, I think this is the useful context, even as publishing itself, book sales itself, over the last couple of years are up a few points. So it even puts into greater relief how bad Barnes & Noble is performing. Um, I'm not sure what to say about this, except... We've been waiting for Barnes & Noble to turn around. We've been talking on this show that if they could, you know, if you look carefully at their balance sheet, if they could just get rid of Nook that was costing them basically all the money uh, mm-hmm. to, to support and try to sell and advertise to, and still it is a dead dog, maybe they could turn around. The problem they, they cite here is even amongst um, improving and solid book sales, their non-book sales lines are fading. So if you've been into a new Barnes & Noble or one that's been, um, I guess, rejiggered of late, you'll notice how much non-book stuff is there. Um, Actually, there's one close to us that has a a really great kids' toys and educational game section and just regular toys, too, that's kind of great. A lot of stationary things of that nature in there. Um, But that has not been enough to stave off um, the eroding you know, the, the eroding problems they're having, which is selling stuff in stores. I don't know at what point that the, you know, that the, the underpinning is eroded enough where the whole thing comes down or it's a different store. I know they've been closing stores aggressively and they still continue to, to close them, but they've shuttered most of their worst performing stores and still this is where we are. No particularly, no particularly new guidance here um, from the CEO that says that there's a reason to think it'll get better. They are predicting continued single-digit declines. So there we go. And that's, you know, I, in the book world, I think Barnes & Noble's fate is not unlike, I don't want to overblow it because it's not comparison, but it's not unlike climate change. Uh, in the book world where we know this thing is happening and it's such a key part of the book world, mm. especially as a uh, bulwark against Amazon, 
that at some point you're going to reach a point where it, you know, we reach a, we reach a uh, meridian which Barnes & Noble no longer can stay in business or something else like that happens. And then the wheels really come off the way the book world is put together. As it is, it's already pretty bad. But that's, I think that's why people, me included, are nervous about Barnes & Noble. I like Barnes & Noble myself. You know, mm-hmm. I go there sometimes. I buy stuff sometimes. It's not a key part of my book buying diet. But I do think um, it is an important you know, top-level predator in the ecosystem that left if that helps provide some bulwark against Amazon. If it goes away, then I think all the problems we have about Amazon, even those of you, even those of us like me who are kind of a, it gives it gives with one hand, it takes away with another hand. Situation that only really works if there is another player. You know, um, yeah, and I think not, it becomes they're difficult. They're not doing anything interesting. They're, it's not. They're not serving any particular. No, and Barnes and Noble. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you want to buy books cheaply, you go to Amazon. If you're interested in convenience, yep. you get your books at Costco and Target while you're shopping. If you want to do the shop local thing, then you go to your indie. Mm-hmm. You go to Barnes and Noble if there's no other option. Like. Yep. There's just no reason. Yeah, and to I go. think that was brought home to me when I was writing the episode, the annotated episode about why independent bookstores go extinct. And long story short, there is. Um, independent bookstores refactored their value propositions about being where service and local and community rather than don't think about, you know, don't worry about price competing with Amazon, A, because it's a sucker's game and you'll lose, but B, that's also maybe not what you're selling. And Barnes and Nobles got stuck in the middle where they're not about price and selection because Amazon just destroys them on that. And also they all look the same and they don't really provide much in addition to selling stuff to the community, they don't, they don't have, as far as I know, and this isn't part of their story, and if it's different, I'd sure like to know that. And if they are doing things like this, their PR team needs to be fired because people should know about it. I mean, especially you and I, of mm-hmm. all the people we should know this yeah. is happening. Um, they're not doing that. So they're, they're caught in this middle of just being a full-priced, it's more expensive with less selection than Amazon, and it's less cozy and feel-good than independent bookstore, and in the middle is death. And I think we're seeing yeah. that. There's no discoverability. There's no interest in curation. There's no, it's just not, it's nothing. <laughs> I, what it is, is it's, it's, the, it's what you have if you don't have another bookstore to go to, right? I mean, I, just, I think that I, is the I service. Myself, like last year, I would go to my independent bookstore because I felt bad, you know? And so I felt like mm-hmm. every third book or so, I would go give them money out of like guilt. Now yep. my independent bookstore is awesome. A new one just opened here in Richmond that I really, really like. And now I find myself doing that to Barnes & Noble. Like, I'll go to Barnes & Noble yeah. every third book because I feel bad. And <sighs> I don't want them yeah. to go out of business. And I, I hate that. I hate mm-hmm. I hate that I feel like guilt, guilted into shopping at a corporate big box place. Right. Because we need them right. to defend ourselves against Amazon. Like, this just drives me nuts. <laughs> drives me nuts. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, for a while, when I didn't have, um, when I was living in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I didn't have a real local local, you know, my, lo- my local independent bookstore was a 45-minute subway right away, so I didn't feel mm-hmm. that bad about buying from Amazon um, or buying from Big Chain. I would buy from Barnes & Noble. Um, just like better my dollars go that way than to Amazon. Not because Amazon is necessarily bad, because I don't want it all to be Amazon. Right, yeah. Uh, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, I'm glad but now I've got exists, Powell's. But I don't want it to be my only choice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, now I've got Powell's. Powell's. Um, and I go there when I can. I have another independent that's in Portland that I like um, that's very, very mom and pop. Uh, 
that if you know and what you know kind of what I do now you know I don't know if we've talked about this recently but I kind of reserve my book buying dollars for um authors of color especially debut authors of color especially debut authors of color and paper or hardback yeah same um so if I'm going to go spend twenty eight dollars and it hurts me, to, I mean it still kind of hurts me, frankly. <laughs> um, I mean I don't know what to say except the truth, which is I still feel the sting a little bit. I will go to my local non Powell's Independent and pay full sticker for Behold the Dreamers or the Mothers or you know um, books of that ilk that we've talked about here. You, you know the books I'm buying uh, on that in that front. Um, I bought Jasmine Words. It's not a debut, but I still bought that there. Sing Unburied Sing, which came out this week. Um, about it there, kind of thinking as an instrumental use of my dollars, I guess. That kind of thing really makes a difference. Like, I mean, I feel like the listeners of this podcast might know this already, and I'm not going to get into it. You can Google it. But where you put your book buying dollars affects how much money the authors make. So if you are interested Mm -hmm. in supporting diverse authors um, and you want your money to really go in their pocket, then buying them full price from an independent bookstore is the best thing that you can do. Aside from like reviewing them and talking about them in public and all of that. But like, as far as putting actual cash in the the pocket of Jasmine Ward, what you want to do Mm -hmm. is go to your independent bookstore. um, And you can look up why that, how like it's a complicated. Yeah. You know what? I realized this time and I have all Jasmine Ward's books, so it wasn't really a case this time, but um, pick another author. Like, um, uh, I can't think of someone I haven't read many of their books by. Anyway, let's say I hadn't bought and read Men We Reaped and S- Salvage the Bones, right? And I was buying Sing and Berry Scene, and I wanted to pick up a paperback of Men We Reaped, which is an awesome book, and you should all read it. I know you love it too, Amanda. Um, is it bet if I have $28 to spend, is it better for me to buy both of those on Amazon for my $28? Or to buy the one hardback from my local. Do you see what I'm trying to get at here? Mm-hmm. Is it better for me f- to support? Let's say I, I'm I care about supporting Ward more than I care about supporting my bookstore. Which now that it comes out of my mouth, I guess that's true. I'd love to support them both equally, but for my 28 bucks, and I'm throwing them at Ward's works. <laughs> uh, what what should I do? Do you know? I don't. I think that that is findable, though. I have I have read articles yes, about probably. how um, the most common author contracts, the differences between the royalties that they make off hardcovers and the royalties they make off paperbacks. So I think you could probably find that information, but I yeah, don't know what probably. Yeah, maybe I maybe I could, and it probably it depends on a specific contract and a specific book. But probably I could probably have a general heuristic that would help me. Yeah, I mean, Amazon um, underwrites. I mean, they, they undercut the prices so far. I would not be surprised if going and buying the one book from an independent bookstore gave her more royalty money than buying both from Amazon. Yeah, I wouldn't I've be also heard recent. I've also re- some authors say that actually it doesn't matter, but that could be author by author. I just don't what it, what's the general case. If those of you out here know if we have a secret birdie that has an agent's contract or an author contract, um, we will certainly keep your name uh, quiet if you'd like to, <laughs> to whisper or or Tell Twitter me. in our ears. Podcastabookriot.com. Uh, let's do a little bit other new. Speaking of new books, I was just excited to see this. Yeah. Um, Emily Mandel has a new book coming out 2019. And I that's all I think is do I know anything else about it? Did you look at this story? It's called The Glass Hotel. I think that's all it I know. It takes place in 2004. And it seems like it's based kind of on the oh what was that guy's name with the big investment Ponzi scheme thing? Madoff. 
Yes. It's Wasn't that Bernie Madoff? About Bernie Madoff. So it's about a young cook hmm. who disappears off a container ship off the coast of Mauritania, which is an island in the Indian Ocean. And then four years later, a massive Ponzi scheme implodes in New York, and the book follows those two events and how those their lives intersect. So it sounds made off Interesting. Yeah. Coming in 2019, so this will have been four years, five years mm-hmm. um, since Station Eleven. Uh, she's not continuing, it doesn't sound like, the science fiction spec fic path, which is fine by me. Um, some people maybe would would be disappointed by that. I don't know. Um, I guess... I guess maybe I, exp- I guess I'm not surprised. I thought of her before this as more of a literary, straight up literary fiction author, mm-hmm. and that Station Eleven was more of a detour. Um, so I'm not surprised to see her wing back. But I think Station Eleven sold so well that most people only know her for writing Station Eleven. Um, so anyway, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, hope she got a big advance. Looking forward to it there. Um, you want to do our last sponsor before we we talk about Anthony Bourdain and Kobo and you know, more wonky <laughs> and stuff. Doulas. Yeah, book doula. yeah let's say we got to end with the book doulas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, our, the next sponsor is A Conspiracy in Belgravia by Sherry Thomas. And some of you out there will recognize kind of the play on that title. This is the second book in a series. The first book is A Study, a study in Scarlet Women, um, which is a gender flipped Victorian retelling of the Sherlock Holmes story. So the main character's name is Charlotte Holmes, and her partner is Mrs. Watson, who is like an elderly widow with a lot of money who is. Super kooky and weird, and I love her so much. Um, and in this second book, uh, they are taking on a case with very personal and deadly implications. Of course, Charlotte is trying to solve the mystery of a missing man. Um, or will someone near her end up as a nameless corpse in the belly of London? Which sounds like very much like most of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories. <laughs> um, but the thing that I really love about this series is that Charlotte is a genius. I mean, in these books, similarly to Sherlock, she's, she's a brilliant person, but she's dealing with the gender norms and difficulties of being a woman in Victorian England. So all of the quirks of Sherlock Holmes' personalities, the, thing that, the things that make him come off as like aggressive and rude um, and maybe a little bit sociopathic, all those things, Charlotte Holmes is not those things. She's not aggressive or mm. rude or sociopathic. She's just very smart and a woman trying to operate and survive on her own in Victorian England. And, and in order to do that, she has to act like she is aggressive and rude and a little bit sociopathic. So the way that Sherry Thomas is doing that is really smart. Um, and so Charlotte has to pretend that she is the sister of the brilliant detective Sherlock Holmes. And then, mm-hmm. of course, she is Sherlock Holmes. So this is her pseudonym. She goes out and solves all these mysteries. Her clients never actually meet, quote-unquote, Sherlock. And Mrs. Watson is the, the money behind the brains. So it's a lot of fun. It's a super fun series. The second book that just came out is called A Conspiracy in Belgravia. So go check that out. I'm reading it right now. Have it on my Kindle. Oh, yeah. Yep, I read the first the one. The first really one or the it. second one? Mm. I read the first one. I'm reading the second one right now. It's on my Kindle. It's on my nightstand. I was reading it last night, and I am some units of Kindle into it. That's something I've never <laughs> been able to... Expert. In this great switch to... <laughs> I am Kindle units into the book. Um, yeah, I like... Another thing I like about it is that she has a lot of the Sherlock quirks, but you said not quite the, the I guess overt and unself-aware quirks Mm -hmm. but in order to do what she wants to do she has to hack her life basically into all the in all these weird and interesting ways so half of the interest of the book for me is at least is like how is sherry thomas going to get this particular personality into a body of a woman and into a body of the woman at this particular time frame and and let her get into a position where she's doing what she wants to do which is 
use her intellect for good, to be helpful and be independent and not be subject to a husband and her, you know, her parents and all those things. So uh, that's, that's really cool. I think it's, so it has kind of that Jane Austen clockwork piece of navigating the social world as a woman that's interesting mm-hmm. with the Sherlock Holmes personality dropped into it. Like that's how I see it. Like the, she's navigating the same world that like Jane Bennett has to navigate, but she wants to solve crime, which I think is awesome. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's my, I'm plugging it in addition to the read. Okay. That's why they pay us the big bucks. Uh, <laughs> work, let's do, uh, I wanted to talk about this because I'm excited to see it, that Rosario Dawson has signed on to narrate Andy Weir's new book, Artemis, um, which I'm very excited and nervous about simultaneously, as many of you are and know, because I like Andy Weir. I like The Martian. He's doing something potentially interesting. The protagonist is a woman of color on the moon. Um, also something heist, that could go right? sideways. And it's a heist, yes, which I'm in on heist on the moon. I'm in all this. I'm in on Rosario Dawson. <laughs> on the other hand, he's a white guy writing a woman of color, and that is just a fraught situation. Um, but until I know that it's fraught, I will be cautiously excited. Um, and Rosario Dawson reading it is an interesting uh, and, and fascinating choice. I've heard The Martian is awesome on audio because um, it's you know it's mostly what do you call them, journal like entries, you know, yeah. recorded. Yeah, and I don't know the frame of this, um, but if it's anything similar, it's, it'd be really fun on audio as well. Rosario Dawson's great, so on and so forth. But the thing I really wanted to talk about here, or at least speculate on, is how much do you think you've got to pay Rosario Dawson to so narrate much. these audiobooks? So much money, right? right? Yes. I like just don't understand the economics of this. And she's so busy doing all the Netflix, like, Marvel stuff. She's in every Marvel. She, she has to shoot a new episode of a Marvel Netflix series every day, as far as I can tell. She's in all of them. She, she is I in mean, all of them. I'm kind of not kidding. She is she's, the glue. She's the connective <laughs> tissue. Yeah, right. For Between all the all defenders and all um, that, yeah. Um, as the nurse Claire. I can't remember her last name. So but, much money um, you'd have to give I, her. I, I just don't understand. Like, they must... Like, because we see, we get these celebrity audio, you know, Reese Witherspoon famously did uh, Ghost at a Watchman, and we get other people narrating, you know, James Franco did a, F. Scott, or no, a Cormac McCarthy one, I think, recently, like, big time A-listers who get paid, who get paid millions of dollars to be in a movie, and I know an audiobook, A, isn't that kind of profile, and the economics are totally different, and it doesn't take six weeks to shoot, but it, it's got to take a couple days, right? Yeah. To do, I mean, I, I sit there, and I try to narrate freaking annotated and it's 20 minutes and it takes several hours to get to be non-excruciating to listen to (laughs) and again these are pros and whatever but like uh 50,000 I mean I don't even know where you start with I don't know I I guess I'm surprised that it's economically feasible for an audiobook to sink this kind of money in the narration the other thing I wonder is does it move units right is anyone's like you know I was gonna buy this on audio but Rosario would like I guess some might but Aren't you cannibalizing the sales from your print? I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. Do you understand any of this? No. <laughs> no. Okay. I think that people who are going to listen to the audiobook were going to listen to it no matter who narrated it. Um, I get, that's kind of what I feel like. But, it may, you know, doing this kind of thing, getting a celebrity to narrate an audiobook makes sense for me, to me, when it's a classic that you're reissuing because it's not a yes. thing. Because pe- people could get that book for free. That, competing instead, with that you know, makes sense to me. Absolutely agree with you there. Yeah. yeah. Or even like having, you know, it's not in the public domain, but having like Maggie Gyllenhaal do The Bell Jar was a big deal. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. that's a, a very good selling um, audiobook. But for like if the author is dead, <laughs> that makes sense to me. But if like they're they're alive and still working and, and 
you're and they're a big name and their books are going to sell well in print no matter what. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm glad it's happening because I like her um, and I'm interested in yes, the book. Yes, I am too. I don't know how it makes yeah. money sense, but yeah. I assume that they know what they're doing. Um, which sometimes in publishing is a dicey <laughs> proposition. Um, but Audible, who I think has done some of these, where they get a they get a big name to to uh, record a, a version of a public domain work. Um, I guess in that situation, you also are, have the cost savings of the royalties owed the author and the publishing house mm-hmm. if you're Audible, right? So you're paying, you can pay all that goes to the narrator's salary and you still kind of have the same situation. But yeah, I, that's another thing. Maybe it's not quite an annotated episode because no one cares except for us about like how much it costs to pay an audiobook narrator. But I'd like to know this. This is something I just like to know. Um, I just got an email from Audible that they hired Martin Sheen to do the audiobook of like some letters from World War II written by soldiers or something like that. Yeah. Um, Wild. Which I thought was like, how much do you have to pay Martin frickin' Sheen? Like, how much do you pay President Bartlett to read an audiobook for you? I don't know. I don't know. I am constantly... Every time I see one of these big announcements, the, the question pops up again. It's like, how much are they paying them? And really, it makes sense. Really? Huh. Maybe that's why audiobooks are $7,000 per. That's probably what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's why it costs $64. What was I was kidding? I wasn't kidding. Uh, I think on Slack um, a while ago, like the full price of like The Fireman by Joe Hill, if you just buy the audiobook, is like $59. No. <laughs> that's no. If you're, if you're subscribed to Audible and you like do all the shenanigans, you get it down and it's like one credit. So it's, you know, tw- I, I buy the three bucks. credits at a go, and that's like eleven ninety five or something like that. But full sticker price is sixty bones. That's also read by a celebrity. Uh, anyway, is that one read by a celebrity? Yeah, the, I don't know. Um, Captain Janeway. I can't ever remember her real name. Oh, She's in Orange is the New uh, Black. God, dang it! Yes, what's her name? Now we're gonna get. Captain don't add Janeway. us. We can go Google it. Yours. Captain, Captain Janeway, Janeway is her name. What's her name? Yeah, Captain Janeway. Yeah, I like her. Kate Mulgrew. There Thank you, you very go. much, Brain, for surfacing that in the nick of getting emailed. Um, but, okay, she, yeah, she's, but you're paying Rosario Dawson more, presumably. I don't know. Who knows? This is my own in initial Q rating system, which cannot be accurately attuned to this day and age, considering my age and proclivities. Um, let's do this book doula's story and get the hell out of here. So why don't you tell us what this is? All right. So a, a doula in general is a, a, a oh, right. Good. Yes. helper, okay, yeah. helper um, is usually a woman who assists a woman in labor, helps her give birth. Um, and so a book doula, I can't, I'm not going to be able to get through this with a straight face. A book doula is a, is a person you hire to help you birth your book. They're not an editor and they're not an agent. There, it's kind of like a coaching right. surface to assist authors who are nervous and or authors who are self-publishing and need assistance or that kind of thing. And so they're calling themselves. Did you see doulas. what they're charging? By the way, did you look at the yeah. what they're charging? Yeah, a thousand four to six hundred dollars a month. Four hundred dollars to design a book cover. A whole self-publishing package is a thousand dollars, which includes cover design, editing, design and formatting for Kindle, and create space. Yeah. Monthly plans for four hundred to six hundred dollars a month, which pay for phone consultations, unlimited support via email, editing, and feedback. So they lied. They are kind of editors. Uh, 
the the thing the metaphor is strange though I guess it's one of those things where you can understand maybe the metaphor just by hearing book doula if you know what a doula is I guess yeah um I don't think I'm telling Tara's school school sorry so we we used it we had hired a doula for our first child's birth found very helpful um we thought of it as much as anything as kind of an advocate for us at the hospital having not done it before like she could help us slow down if we we did have some decisions to make um, around what happened and you know everything that went on and all that stuff just someone who's been there a lot that isn't because you also don't know as, as many of you know that you, you don't necessarily have your ob on call when you go on in. Call. and if we right. loved our ob um and if we knew she would have been there i think we've been we would have been okay without one but we didn't, and she was great. She was very supportive, and especially when we wanted to stay at home as long as we could, um, and she helped us read the signs and helped Michelle stay very uncomfortable, but uncomfortable <laughs> so far as where she didn't feel like she needed to go to the hospital, and just, it, it was a great experience, and I, I think in that situation, it made a lot of sense. The thing I'm afraid of here uh, in this particular marketing is I'm always afraid of sp- people wanting to self-publish their book get, getting fleeced. I'm very yeah, nervous same. about that. Yeah. And this feels like putting a Gwyneth Paltrow bogus new age spin on giving me your money to do something that maybe does isn't worth it. Is that unfair, Amanda? Am I, am I being too rough? No, I think it's silly. <laughs> I just think it's silly. Yeah. Like, the things that they're doing... If you need, if you want to hire somebody to give you emotional support through a process, cool. Like that's awesome. Cool. Yes. Totally agree with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I do, uh, the, the calling yourself a doula when what you're doing is helping somebody self-publish a book is strange to me. And, you know, I think it has a lot to yeah. do with how, um, people say like some authors will say that their books are their babies and mm-hmm. it's like, which is another thing that just like, just drives me bonkers. Um, Totally agree. Book, yeah. A book is not a child. Stop it. Just stop saying that. Yeah. Uh, stop. So I that's think that that's right. connected to this, and um, I don't like that at all. But I don't. I, I agree with you. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of people who are unfamiliar with how publishing works, and are so and are unfamiliar enough with self-publishing that they feel like they need to hire somebody mm-hmm. to help them getting taken advantage of. That's yeah. not a thing I want to see yeah. happen. And I guess, and again, I, again, I've never tried to write a book. Um, I don't know what it's like to try to publish a book. So that's my, my caveat here. But my understanding is that the process of getting an agent and getting a book published, it's not easy, but it's also not super complicated. Like you write a book and you query and you submit manuscripts and that's how it works. Whereas, I, I don't know. I guess if you're, and there's also companies and people that specialize in author services for people that self publishing. It's much like Book Baby. There's a bunch of them. They've sponsored the show. So, disclaimer there. We've worked with them to do one of the Start Here volumes. So, that's one that I know, but there's a bunch of them out there where you can get ad hoc, or no, that's the wrong word. Well, ad hoc, after you've written or before hoc, right? <laughs> services to try to get the, the book made. Um, and there's just something about this way that this pitch that I just feel like it feels like it's taking is, advantage of somebody's emotional fragility in a moment where they're there. You themselves. go. Thank you. That's exactly what that I'm nervous about. And I, I guess maybe that's what 
I we paid a doula to do around our own birth. Yeah, um, but you were having an actual human child. <laughs> like this is yeah. I God, guess I, I, not, yeah. Right, right, right. You're writing a thing. Like doulas exist. For right. The, you know there are death doulas. There are abortion doulas, and I think yes. all of those things are you know necessary and excellent. But like you're making a product. I don't know. It just feels weird to me. It's the same squeakiness to me that people talk about like bibliotherapists, right? Like you're depressed and I'm going to give you modern lovers, but I don't know. I'm just picking a book at random almost. Something teal colored (laughs) um, to help you feel better. And I just, I just get very nervous about this people's real lives and that's the real money and it's the real hopes and dreams. And also most doulas, like at least the doula we went, there's a training situation and right, a certification yeah. program you and references like yeah. so i this also suggests like they're taking this this word and using it to effects that i just am, i'm uncomfortable with but i think that i said before we started recording that i think this is troublesome but also interesting to me and what's interesting to me about it is if there is a market for this it does show how a, how much people care about a book project. You know, it's not a baby, but they think of it that way. And secondly, the the, the weird birthing metaphor like that, that goes along with it and the money people are willing to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, $1,000, four to $600 a month to self-publish a book that you surely will not make. I mean, surely. It's like, like the lottery. Like, I guess some people maybe will, blah, blah, blah. But most of it's this is a money losing endeavor, and I just get very nervous and worried for people um, that they're they're expecting something that they're not going to get. And part of it is the marketing of how this is put together. So um, buyer beware uh, here. But a fascinating, I think, development in the language and understanding of how books are made that this is a thing that people are happening, tells me something about how people think about their own books and also think about the whole self-publishing processes. Long, long ago, we used to say, people used to say, it's simple to publish your book. You just put the Kindle version out there and you write a book that you care about and you too can be Hugh Howey, right? Or whoever, J.A. Yeah. Conrath. And now we're to the point where the metaphor is labor at the cost of thousands of dollars. It's just crazy how far we've come since we first started doing the podcast and talking about self-publishing. Like, that this is a way people understand, like, oh, yeah, I can see how you might want a, a book duel. It's like, wow, we've come a long way from the heady days of gold rush to self-publishing. So, anyway, that's our show. Uh, you can send us an email, podcast at bookriot.com, especially if you know about audiobook, celebrity narration, um, insider baseball, or if you have a good reference link experience about, I want to spend my $28 on the works of Jasmine Ward, what's my most interest, instrumental way of spending those dollars? I'd love to know that. Um, I'll do a little homework too and see if I can come up with anything for you guys next week. Uh, go check out Recommended. I really think you're going to like it. Um, I'm doing some interviews. Uh, Jen's doing interviews. Rebecca's done some interviews. I think uh, there's some voices you're going to recognize coming up and some people that maybe you won't, but are going to give you really awesome book recommendations. Both Jen and I have bought books that we'd never heard of before after doing some of these interviews. So that's as good of a recommendation. I can give it to you. Go check out Amanda on Annotated, um, the one about Mary Shelley inventing basically science fiction as we know it. <laughs> uh, bookriot.com slash recommended. Bookriot.com slash annotated for those two shows. Uh, nice past participle symmetry on those. Amanda, thank you for coming in. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Mm-hmm.